Good evening. Three men are cleared after 24 years in prison for a murder in Queens they didn't commit. Are New York schools ready to build back better? And peace washing. Should activists rely on big donor grants? With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. First to these headlines with Pacifica's Eileen Alfandari. Israeli politicians who've negotiated a new governing coalition are pushing for a quick parliamentary vote to formally end the lengthy rule of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. They want to head off any last-minute attempts by Netanyahu to derail their newly announced coalition government. Minutes before the midnight deadline, centrist opposition leader Yair Lapid and his main far-right coalition partner Naftali Bennett declared they had reached a deal for a coalition. The eight parties making up that government are from across the ideological spectrum. They seemingly share only the goal of toppling Netanyahu after his record-setting 12 years in power. The alliance even includes a Palestinian Islamist party, a first in Israeli politics. Mansour Abbas heads the United Arab List. His remarks were translated by Al Jazeera. I just signed an agreement with Yael Lapid so he can form a government. We've agreed on many issues that will serve the interests of Arab society and provide solutions to the urgent problems Arab society faces in various fields. The coalition commands a razor-thin majority of 61 votes in parliament. Bennett is openly against a two-state solution with Palestinians. He supports expansion of illegal Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and their partial annexation. If the coalition survives, it's likely to set aside any return to negotiations with the Palestinians and focus on recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. A Dallas high school valedictorian scrapped the speech approved by her school administrators and delivered a call for abortion rights in its place. Valedictorian Paxton Smith had submitted to school officials an address on the effect of the media. But when she spoke at Sunday's graduation ceremony, she instead talked about what she called a war on the rights of her body and those of other girls and women by the so-called heartbeat bill signed into law by the Texas governor a week and a half before. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. The new Texas law outlaws without exception any abortion after a first heartbeat can be detected. That could come as early as six weeks after conception. Thank you, Eileen. And in New York City news, three men who spent a quarter century in prison for a 1996 botched robbery and double murder in Elmhurst, Queens, had their charges dismissed today by Judge Joseph Zayas. The victims were Ira Mike Epstein, the owner of a check cashing spot, and off-duty NYPD officer Charles Davis, who was providing security. The three men, all black, George Bell, Rohan Bolt, and Gary Johnson, had been freed in March when the judge vacated their sentences. At the time of the arrest, Bell was 19, Johnson was 22, and Bolt was 34. In the course of the 1996 investigation, 
which included days of interrogation of the three men and a supposed witness. The cops got several confessions. All turned out to be false. And in a seemingly unrelated case, a year later, three gang members were shot and wounded during an attempted armored car heist. Concealed in transcripts of their interrogations, one of the armored car robbers claimed he was a lookout in the Queens check-cashing robbery murders. For years, the Queens DA's office denied a connection between the check-cashing robbery and the armored truck heist. Last year, a new Queens district attorney, Melinda Katz, appointed a conviction integrity unit that began looking into the case. The unit discovered evidence, a member of a gang known as Speed stick had confessed to the killings and the chief witness for the prosecution was experiencing hallucinations at the time of his testimony at the time mayor rudy giuliani burnishing a law and order image had called for a swift resolution of the case lawyers say evidence may have been purposely overlooked the attorney for two of the freed men is rita dave office had undertaken a 90-day very in-depth investigation into the case after the convictions had been vacated. And this morning, they let us know that as a result of their investigation, they would no longer be pursuing charges against our clients. The indictment will be dismissed tomorrow. Because of the investigations that were done, you know, there was newly discovered evidence that had come to light, evidence that if our clients had at the time of their trials 24 years ago, they may not have been convicted. In fact, they would not have been convicted. So it's a wonderful, wonderful day, and, and we are, we're so happy um, to give these three men their lives back. What happened 24 years ago, and what changed their mind? 24 years ago, there was a double homicide, and one of the victims was a off-duty police officer. And in, in a rush to solve that crime, and in a frenzy of the fact that there was a double homicide, the investigation took a path that focused on three men that were innocent. One of the men, my client, Rohan Bolt, didn't even know the other two young boys. He was a 35-year-old entrepreneur, businessman, father of four. Because of one individual that had been arrested and who just threw names in, three innocent guys got caught up, and then the police arrested them. Two confessed falsely. That's what came to light now. Who is responsible for getting the government to go back on something like this? Because, uh, you know, I know how difficult that could be. In 2020, when Melinda Katz won the DA election for Queens County, she set up, true to her promises, she set up a conviction review unit, which was headed by Bryce Benjet. Myself and my co-counsel, Mark Wolinski and Scott Stevenson and David Cole from Legal Aid, they represented George Bell and I represented Gary Johnson and Rohan Bold. We started working with the Conviction Review Unit, and that's when they took about a year and two months to do a thorough investigation with us, which included going back, unsealing files, looking for police reports, doing interviews. As a result of that, we're here today. Was it just a mistake or overzealousness, or was there sort of culpability the circumstances that led to their wrongful convictions were fueled by misconduct on the part of the police, the rush to just make decisions and decide that someone committed a crime but not fully investigate. Then Mayor Giuliani had gotten in front of the news and said that he was going to solve this crime and a lot was overlooked. There was evidence that had come forward that led to someone else committing this crime and that was just not pursued and set aside. All of the evidence that could have proved that someone else did this crime was overlooked. Are these gentlemen still in jail right now? 
after the completion of the in- conviction review unit investigation was done, the DA's office had put everything in front of Judge Zayas, and at that point, the convictions were vacated, and we had all made a joint agreement that the clients would be released from prison. So they were all released on March 5th after the vacatur of the conviction and have remained free on their own recognizance the last 90 days while the DA's office completed their investigation. And now tomorrow, the indictment will be dismissed. Are you going to sue? Are they going to sue? Is there going to be some sort of a way to make these people accountable? That's the next step. Yes, right. You have to consider that 25 years, 24 years of having lost everything when it shouldn't have happened. So, yes, yes. And that's attorney Rita Dave. The killing of Epstein and Davis was front page news in December 1996 with a fierce manhunt leading to the arrest of the three men within days. And in related news, my how the mighty have fallen with former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani falling deep into debt with mounting legal bills. The ex-personal attorney to Donald Trump is now peddling my pillow products. He pretends to be especially excited about the my pillow slippers stuttering on the word before his voice jumps a few octaves. I don't know if the ad is running anywhere on the Internet besides Giuliani's own hour long YouTube video on UFOs. And in more local news, Chuck Schumer, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Jamal Bowman are calling for $400,000 from Congress to fund a violence reduction program for trauma victims at Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx. This follows a violent Memorial Day in which more than a dozen were shot and 15-year-old A 15-year-old Bronxite was killed in shootings across all five boroughs. Clark Adamitis reports. The officials spoke out at the Jacoby Medical Center, home to a program called Stand Up to Violence. It has helped victims of violent trauma since 2014. They aim to reduce violence in their Morris Park community by treating violence like a disease. Doctors work to heal the patients physically, and social workers help prevent future violence in the community. Bronx Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says youth who have participated in the program are 52% less likely to be injured in another violent trauma. That is one of the most effective interventions we have at reducing the reoccurrence of violent crime, period. Someone gets admitted to the hospital with an injury that is highly correlated usually with something like violent crime, a gunshot wound or a stabbing wound, for example. We bring in, yes, a doctor to make sure that we patch up that wound and heal the the biological and anatomical threats to that person. But let's also bring in a psychiatrist. Let's bring in a social worker. Let's bring in outreach workers who know and understand what that experience was. And let's figure out what led to the precipitation of that event. Does that person have housing? Are they adequately employed? Are things okay at home? How is school going? The $400,000 that the representatives are asking for would add an emergency room social worker, a caseworker, a part-time psychiatrist, and a creative arts or music therapist. Senate Majority Leader from New York, Chuck Schumer, describes these people as essential workers. They do a lot of one-on-one. They mentor at-risk youth on educational and job opportunities. And they deploy outreach workers to go to emergencies and work to prevent retaliation. They also assist family members of those who have been injured or killed. These are difficult things, but they are things that should be supported. And I am here today saying I fully support the additional Uh, $400,000 in federal funds. 
which would mean a new emergency uh, room social worker, a caseworker that stays with the person or family throughout the journey, psychiatrists who evaluate mental health needs, and probably most importantly, people who can provide that peer-to-peer -peer support and that mentorship that is so important. The social workers in the Stand Up to Violence program want to see the youth in their community grow up feeling safe. Kayan Reed, outreach coordinator for the program, had this to say. These kids need to be able to go outside and play, grow up right, commune together. And we're losing that. We hear those cries from those mothers, from them fathers, from them family members. We, some of us have to carry those caskets and put those in the ground. Reed says the additional positions and funding for the violence reduction program will go a long way to help Morris Park community members. Clark Adamitis, WBAI News. Thanks, Clark. Meanwhile, after an almost year-long fight, a state appeals court on Thursday dismissed a lawsuit which tried to block the city from re relocating homeless men from the Lucerne Hotel on the Upper West Side. The decision means the city will be allowed to relocate the nearly 70 men who still live at the Lucerne Hotel to a different hotel in Lower Manhattan. Despite the hoopla, for many homeless people, a decline in COVID-19 cases is having a deleterious effect. The mayor and the Department of Homeless Services are expected to announce soon thousands of homeless people staying in hotels during the coronavirus pandemic will be moved back to their former shelters. And the NYPD says it's investigating multiple acts of vandalism at a Soho gallery featuring an art exhibit focusing on the Tulsa race massacre. A sign reading Black Wall Street Gallery was defaced and covered in white paint. The gallery's current exhibit is called 21 Peace Salute, a tribute to the victims of the 1921 Tulsa race massacre and the community once called Black Wall Street. Owner Rocco White says the vandalism over the weekend was no accident. The NYPD's Hate Crimes Task Force is handling the investigation. <clears throat> And a new analysis by the organization Advocates for Children reports the NYPD removed students from school classrooms, sometimes in handcuffs, and took them to hospitals for psychological evaluations 12,000 times between 2016 and 2020. The NYPD calls these incidents child and crisis interventions, and the data shows they were more likely to happen to some students than others. 27% of the students' incidents involve black boys who make up just 13% of the public school population. 20% of the incidents involve black girls who make up just 12% of total enrollment. And 9% of the incidents happened in special education District 75 schools, which serve just 2% of the city's students. Around 10 percent of the time these students in crisis were handcuffed among them were 23 seven-year-olds seven six-year-olds and three five-year-olds an nypd spokeswoman says safety is a primary concern when deciding whether to restrain a student and that officers confer with school officials on what to do and climate change in schools were on the agenda today at a news conference sponsored by the coalition Climate Works for All. The group is responsible for the 2019 passage of Local Law 97, requiring large buildings over 25,000 square feet to cut emissions by 80 percent by 2050. In a Zoom call today, members of the coalition unveiled an equitable action plan for schools to be taken up by the next mayor. The plan calls for installing solar and air control systems like HVAC in public schools. New York City has about 1,800 public school buildings with rooftops the coalition says are perfect for solar power. 
The head of Align New York is Maritza Silver-Farrell. She says after years of negotiating with the mayor and the city council, Climate Works for All, including the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 3, has an agreement for the city to spend $3.8 billion to install the rooftop solar and HVAC installations on the school rooftops as an entryway for new electricians. But she says they're still waiting for the city to act. Since then, we've been waiting for the city to just come up with the overall uh, plan to roll out uh, not only the funding, but also the work um, for the installation of solar panels in the schools, as well for the in, in investment on the energy efficiency for public buildings, starting off with public uh, school buildings. Uh, that's sort of the, the background on where we started back in the day. And to this day, as I mentioned in the chat, I think we have just a few schools that have been um, have receiving the installation of the of the solar. Some of the schools um, we find out that we're getting installed with non-union jobs, so we have to just get a handle on that. And that's how the project labor agreement really got finalized at the end. Um, a couple of months ago, it was finally completed by the building construction trades unions um, and the city. So now that we have the commitment, we just want them to roll out the implementation. Do they not see the same importance to it as you do? Or what is the reason for the delay? One of the things that they've been saying is that the labor cost is a problem. The unions are creating a different kind of rate so that any installation of solar panels can be done in a way that it does not just break the bank for the city, right? And at the same time, it's done in a way that you can create the, the apprenticeship programs that they run. So what you've seen, for example, in other institutions that install solar panels with the unions, they pay $10 an hour. The job is done. And then the employee does not have another job anywhere else. And you see a lot of training programs that train people to just get some basics of how to install solar panels. And then they get a $10 an hour job. The job is done. Here, what we're trying to do with the construction trade union, the jobs that are created through the solar installation, we can get into the IBW and similarly getting into other kind of electrical work. The person will have a opportunity to be trained on a variety of things that had to do with electrical work. Do basic work and then work your way up into a nice Exactly. From, that's exactly what the report is laying out. So we can get, create a pre-apprenticeship, the apprenticeship, and then the journey man, a journey woman can actually get into the other kind of jobs. What was the demand today? Was there a demand specific? Uh, what's the call? Now we have the money. It's $3.8 billion that the city has. The money's been sitting there. We need to roll out the funding for uh, the city to prioritize energy efficiency changes that need to happen in public schools, starting off with the HVAC system, which means creating a better air quality controls in the school buildings. We are coming out of COVID, and we know that this disease is an airborne disease. By upgrading HVAC systems, we are actually creating a solution so that folks who still have not been able to get vaccines, they can actually feel safe or somewhat safe in their classrooms. So that's a priority number one. At the same time, now that we have the money and the money is rolling out, we must ensure that solar installation on schools happened right away, prioritizing neighborhoods that are considered to be the environmental justice neighborhoods, where we know that when the electricity is overused, 
the bigger plants kick off. And those when those plants kick off, then we're creating a tons of pollution in those same neighborhoods that we know are already facing even health uh, issues at this moment. So that's the demand. The money's there. Move out the projects, get this work going so that we can get the employment opportunities in place and also make sure that we address a problem that has been undergoing even before the pandemic. Maritza Silla-Farrell of Align New York. The IBEW business manager is Chris Erickson. He says they have a project labor agreement or PLA with the city to allow the IBEW to hire local residents for the installations, allowing a separate pay scale for apprentices coming into the business. The building trade signed a PLA with New York City. They were going to exclude the solo. And it wasn't until I was able to negotiate, keeping in mind that in order for this to happen, we got to keep solar affordable, both in the private sector and in the public sector. So we made some modifications to our collective bargaining agreement to include the workforce at lower rates to be able to come up with some composite crews, keeping solar affordable. And I also made the commitment to give opportunity to people from impacted communities to come into Local 3. We've been doing that for a long time. Direct entry programs, NYCHA, new helmets to hard hats, construction skills, pre-apprenticeship programs. I need to develop something here that focuses on this. But I don't want to bring these people in to a low-wage solar career. I want it to be a pathway, come in, work a year on the solar, and then move on into a, throughout our apprenticeship program, become journeymen, middle-class wages, all good stuff, and become full-time electricians. And that's going to happen. IBEW business manager Chris Erickson. Electrical contractor Stephen Giannotti says the contractors are just waiting for the go-ahead to make green jobs that are lasting and pay well a reality in New York. We employ union labor, which provides good-paying jobs with wages and benefits, which lead to lifelong career paths for these individuals. Our opportunities to work with all types of electrical systems, including green energy, allows us to advance our workers to better positions within the industry. We have fully trained mechanics, which go on to lifelong career, middle-class paths, and beyond. We urge Mayor de Blasio to utilize the funds that were made available to advance green energy in New York City for a healthier city for all of us. I communicate with the School Construction Authority, which does a lot of new school buildings. I'm constantly reminding them that we need to start incorporating solar systems on top of these buildings. There are certainly an abundant amount of rooftops, which we could utilize these funds to incorporate the systems, the green systems. Other agencies are also beginning to look at that. We all need to continue to remind them that this needs to be done for us and our children and thereafter. Electrical contractor Stephen Giannotti. One of the chief advocates of the bill is Upper West Side City Council member Helen Rosenthal. She says despite the negotiations, the city is unprepared for a big new project. She says the Department of Education needs schooling on what it means to make the schools safer with better ventilation and solar. There's no way for those of us who don't just have the vision of saying something must happen, but want to make sure that it actually does happen, there's no way for us to track solar panels on roofs in the capital plan. And so as the chair of the 
subcommittee on capital now i'm working with omb to change how agencies label projects to make them consistent and even within the department of education how they label a solar panel on roof project so anyone in the public could see where the city is, whether or not they're getting these projects done and whether or not they're having the result they have to have. City Council member Helen Rosenthal, advocates say when the new HVAC systems kick in, the extra pressure on Con Ed would lead to switching on dirty peaker plants, emergency power plants dotting the city, often fueled by diesel oil, contributing to asthma and bad outcomes for COVID infections. And are progressives relying on large donors to the detriment of issues they're fighting? It's a phenomenon already seen in environmental issues. There, it's called greenwashing, but when the grants pay for Democrats to park in progressive organizations awaiting a Democrat to take office. It's called peacewashing. And does it blunt the progressive message? Journalist and author David Lindorf, winner of the Izzy Award, has more. It's similar to what happened to the environmental movement in the 70s and, and early 80s when it was a consortium set up of major grantees that started being the essential funders of these groups. And it tamed them. They basically, if you get like the Rockefeller Brothers Foundations and things like that involved in environmental funding, it brings everything down to the lowest common denominator if the groups work to coordinate their funding. It's a little different than gatekeepers, but sort of like these big funders, first in the environmental movement, which was really militant and in the street and out there and in the woods out there in the 70s when it really took off. And then they got tamed down. They became sort of greenwashers for corporations and stuff. And all of that happened after the big funders that were putting money into these organizations formed this consortium, the Environmental Grant Makers Association, which was coordinating their grants. If these peace activist funders were private corporations, they could be accused of antitrust. If they meet and discuss their granting policies, even if they aren't conspiring to block out funding for certain activities that are more militant, the people in those organizations, the activist groups, may feel that that's happening so then moderate their behavior in order to be able to get funding who are the worst offenders the worst is probably these groups like plowshares is the big one if you look into the membership peace and security funders group it also includes things like the open society organization which is soros these are organizations that want to play the democratic party game The idea is to have a place where someone can go and maintain their peace activist chops while not doing anything that would be embarrassing at a confirmation hearing in front of a bunch of Republicans when the president is a Democrat. I'm a 72-year-old guy. I was an anti-war activist and war resistor. And I remember well the the anti-war movement in the late 60s and early 70s. We weren't part of the Democratic Party in the anti-war movement. We were equal opportunity, angry demonstrators against Lyndon Johnson or Richard Nixon. Then something happened where the peace movement became very polite, 
marching down the street inside of the barricades established by the police, not raiding offices to hold up signs at hearings and point out the criminal behavior of U.S. imperialism and so on. It became very polite and also very pro-democratic party. And uh, what does this mean and what should we do about it? We wanted to shine a light on this, but you have things like the Arms Control Association calling for Biden to have the nuclear arms modernization plan be more cost effective, not to do away with it. Journalist and author David Lindorf, winner of the Izzy Award. 